Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, hopefully your students are able to use some of the lessons from your classroom, right? The, his- the social studies lessons, the history lessons to like not be surprised by things that happen today, right? Because they know that that these things happen in history and history can help prepare them. Do, what, what lessons do you think they take out of your classes or do you hope they take out of your classes so that they're prepared to understand the things happening in the world? I hope they get more than what are the causes of the War of 1812, because as much as we love the War of 1812, which I really don't. No, no one doesn't. Uh, no. But I feel like that's such a low That's not like the thing that I want to last, you know, I want them to, I do want them to think about questioning why things happen. I want them to, you know, consider various viewpoints to help better understand things. But in terms of like what I want them to walk away, if all they walk away with is the war of 1812, then I did not do a good job. I feel. Well, the lesson could be that the White House can be burned down, right? Like, oh I mean, God! I mean, now I don't, I don't want, I'm not, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> but, but right, the point is, is like there was a time when people literally burned down the White House, right? And during the during that war, and that seems unimaginable, right? Like I could not imagine turning on my TV and and there being like amidst violence that, that a, an institution was burning down. But I think the important thing is understanding that these things do and can happen, right? That things can be destroyed. And in fact, I think in the United States, we often, some of us at least, can be oblivious because this happens in other countries, right? You see destruction of governmental institutions. You see bombings and air raids and things that destroy things that, that we assume maybe are going to be there always. Does that, right? I mean, can't history and, and knowing the world, not even just the past, but the more wide world uh, that exists today, help you understand that our world is a bit more fragile sometimes and not as stable as we, we always like to think it? I feel like we like to... I feel like we, we run into an issue when we teach history is, is dead or history is just past. I feel like there are kind of like ongoing lessons or there are, it's more, things are less black and white. Things are less clear cut. Things are a lot more murky than, you know, your history book tells you. And so kind of like examining that, and I guess I sure like looking at what's going on in other countries, I guess, but I mean, there's still a heck of a lot going on in in the U.S. that I fear many don't really know what happened. Yeah, and and unfortunately, I'm I'm coming up with a lesson idea, which is is Michael's face as I was using the example of like the the White House burning or other things was he was not 
who's not comfortable during this discussion. <laughs> but I, I do have visioning activity. I've talked about it on here, and we had Kim Pennington on, I think, in episode three to oh, talk yeah. about this idea. I often have students uh, imagine their ideal classroom because often the only way to, to change what schools and classrooms look like sometimes is to kind of get out what you've seen and, and really dream big about what you're wanting and then move towards those ideals. I could almost see a school lesson where you think about what are some of the worst things that could happen you know, to our country, for example, you know, what are the worst case things? And some of those worst case things have already happened, right? We've had a past with, that's been very brutal. That's included a lot of things, but I think students almost, if they, if they kind of envision what those things are, they might start to think, how do we prevent them? And so, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud, maybe we need somebody else who's <laughs> got some, some teacher wisdom to, to teach us how, how we prepare students for this world we're living. And what do you think, Michael? I think we should definitely welcome our guest. <laughs> so let's welcome right now our guest into the podcast. Welcome, Alicia Butler-Arnold. Welcome. Hello. Thank you all for, for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it greatly. <laughs> we we, we appreciate you making it through that whole segment. That might have been miseducative. I, I apologize. <laughs> Alicia, can you tell us a little bit about, about who you are and your background in education? Hi. Yeah. So, um, yeah, once again, my name is Alicia Butler-Arnold. I am a uh, Florida native, South Florida, born and raised, loving it. Um, been here in the D.C. area now for over 11 years. I've been teaching for over 21 years now. I can't believe it's been that long. I feel like I just blinked. <laughs> uh, and here I am. You know, I've taught uh, history. African-American history is my specialty. I particularly really enjoy exploring and learning as much as I can about the period during Reconstruction. I am currently here teaching in the D.C. area uh, in 2019. It was a pretty good year for me. I was awarded the National History Teacher of the Year Award from Gilda Lerman. That same Ooh. year, I was also awarded the um, Daughters of the American Revolution Outstanding American History Teacher of the Year for the District of Columbia. I was also that same year a D.C. Community Cornerstone winner as well. Wow. That was a great year. That is a great year. <laughs> kind of hard to top 2019. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think the next step is just for you to run for president, right? I mean, you're already in DC, so that that would be then you can you can build on your 2018 honors and in, right into your your candidacy. Hey, you never know what's <laughs> down the road. <laughs> it's true. That is so, true. Can you tell us a little bit about your teaching career? Um, I mean, you talked about focusing on, I, and that's one of my favorite eras. Um, Black history and reconstruction is, is um, something I've always been really fascinated with. Uh, David Blight from Yale has a, had a lecture up that I just randomly found when I was in college and I listened to the whole thing and became very interested with it. And I promised Michael today that I'm not going to mention a famous historical figure from who was alive during that era because I mentioned them every episode. But what, what it, tell, tell us about your classes, what your classes look like. And, and how you got interested in that particular topic. You, believe it or not, I got interested in that topic because I was never taught it in high school. The first time I ever learned about Reconstruction was when I went to college. And I went to Florida Atlantic University and had an amazing group of historians, professors. And that was the first time I was exposed to it. And I could not believe that such an integral piece of the puzzle to really understanding everything after the Civil War uh, was left out of my curriculum. Uh, never once mentioned. And ever since then, 
all roads lead back to Reconstruction, in my opinion. You can't understand anything about American history or where we are right now unless you go back to Reconstruction. And I, I have to admit, whenever I teach it, like I'm teaching it now with my current students, and it's just if there was any apathy before, if I was having trouble making sure my kids, you know, report to virtual class, I don't have that problem now. We're doing reconstruction. I mean, they are just eager to absorb everything because they cannot believe the events that we're talking about took place in their country. It's a, it's such an incredible time. Eric Foner calls it the second founding, and I really like thinking of it that way. That the 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 aim of reconstruction was to create a different country than yeah. it would, what had existed. And the struggle, which was far too short, was just, I mean, it, it really is hard to even imagine for that time period, the things that were happening, and then ultimately how it, how it failed. I would argue with my students, we always talk about how actually Reconstruction was the point, the one moment I feel in our history um, where we came close to actually really reaching the ideals that were expressed in the Declaration of Independence. And we, I really feel in many ways we, we kind of blew it. And it's funny that you reference Eric Foner because I know David Blight is your man. I call David, I call Eric Foner in my classroom the original OG. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to Reconstruction history, my kids get a, you know, they, they love it. But I'm like, yeah, so we're going to talk about the original OG right now. We're going to read something from the original OG about, you know, this event or that event from Reconstruction. I just think Eric Foner is just amazing to me. So we will make sure to get his reconstruction book in our show notes for people that want to nerd out. And hey, maybe we'll have a book club. Sounds like Alicia would be would be willing to join the book club. So all in. <laughs> so the reason we're having you on, besides that we want to talk about reconstruction for just hours on end, and I'm you think I'm kidding, I'm really here for it. But is you wrote an article for social education that was just published. So first, congratulations on your article being published. Thank you. Thank you. It is the first, hopefully not the last. So the article was uh, that was published um, just in this most recent uh, January, February issue of 2021 is titled Why My Students Weren't Surprised on January 6th. Can you tell us about like what inspired you to write the article and what you included in it? Absolutely. Thank you. In reality, I was here, you know, I'm in close proximity to the Capitol. And I was horrified by what I saw. I was angry. You know, uh, I had to kind of catch myself because my, my five-year-old was like, mommy, what's wrong? What's going on? And I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And, you know, I sat down that day and I was like, okay, how am I going to teach this? Because what was so ironic was I actually was in the process of creating a lesson for my students the next day because I could not wait, you know, to be able to talk about the events that took place in Georgia with, you know, the Reverend Raphael Warnock. And, you know, um, Ostoff winning the, the election. And I wanted to prove to my students, hey, you know, we can make a difference. My students are predominantly black and, black and brown. And, you know, they have good reason to be quite cynical with everything that they've witnessed with this last summer. But I wanted to let them know that collective action, organizing, grassroots can work. History can be made and to not become disillusioned. And right in the midst of me, you know, getting ready, getting that lecture ready, that activity uh, together. I'm witnessing, you know, a Confederate flag being walked right into the Capitol, you know, <laughs> without, you know, any resistance, any hesitancy either. Which had, which had never happened, right? That's, that's the story, at least I've heard that, that at no time, you know, you had the Civil War, it didn't happen then, um, that, or dur during, yeah. during these periods where you even had, you know, Southern presidents who were Confederate sympathizers uh, or Confederates themselves. It didn't happen then. And for it to happen now, the symbolism is really something to, to discuss with students. 
Absolutely. And that's not something that we need to kind of gloss over. The fact that a Confederate flag and everything that that resembles, you know, and, and, and symbolizes, you know, right into our capital, uh, unabated. And, you know, I but more importantly, what angered me more than what was taking place was the responses that I was reading. You know, I was reading articles in the Washington Post. I'm, I'm watching people on CNN. You know, this isn't us. How, how could this happen? This isn't who we are. And I wanted to say, what America have you been living in? And it just kind of goes back to what so many, um, you know, Black, you know, people have said throughout history. There are two Americas right now. There always really has been two Americas. And I, I just feel like the invasion of the Capitol was the first time for, you know, a lot of white Americans that it was, you know, in their face. There have been plenty of times in history where you have seen, you know, white supremacy and you've seen violence and you've seen a disrespect for the electoral process, you know, happen and terrorize Black Americans and Black communities. And so that is what motivated me to, number one, sit down and to, you know, really think about how I was feeling. So I wrote some things down, but I think what really kind of, um, you know, motivated me to finish the article was the responses my students had the next day. I was concerned. I was a little worried, but they really, <laughs> they restored my hope and they actually made me feel like what I was doing mattered. If I ever had experienced teacher burnout, um, I promise you that, you know, what happened on January 7th and the days after is going to be something that will, I will always look to, to re-energize me and to let me know that I have purpose because a lot of my students and former students that I had that were calling me saying, hey, you know, like I'm angry that this happened. I'm kind of shocked that this happened, but you know, you, you kind of prepared us for us. And we were able to talk about things that we've learned in the past and say, this is just like, you know, when this is just like this that you talked about. And I want to say like, wow, my students are able to digest what's happening a lot better than a lot of adults were, um, particularly a lot of white adults. And I was like, that's, that's not right. And I, I really was feeling that that is a testimony of what's not happening in our classrooms and what's missing from our curriculum and our state standards. Right. I think there's, right. I think like you're saying, there's two Americas. It makes me think it's like, there's almost uh, different textbooks that are entering our classes. And I don't literally just mean textbooks, but the lectures, the worksheets, the, all the things that teachers do in their classroom. And there's, there's one that, that never talks about white supremacy as playing a major role. And then there's another that does. And when you, when you talk about white supremacy, you see a continuity throughout American history. And the, unfortunately this, uh, what happened at the Capitol is, is very much in line with a lot of those things that have happened. So what things did you teach your students to where they were not surprised that something like this could happen? Yeah, definitely. I want to actually kind of go back to the point you were making just about even the idea of teaching white supremacy. The last time I checked, and my numbers could be off, but the last time I checked, I was like, I think it was less than five states in our union currently actually even mentioned the word white supremacy in their social studies standards. And that's an issue. That's a problem that definitely has to be rectified. But some of the things that I've talked about with my students, you know, we have definitely talked about the Colfax um, massacre that took place in Louisiana that occurred in 1873 on Easter Day. We've also talked about the Wilmington um, massacre that took place in North Carolina. We've talked about what happened in Nacoe, Florida, you know, that happened in the 1920s. All of these events are all examples of, you know, Black people exercising their right to vote, making a difference in the elections and white supremacists um, not honoring it and using uh, violence and terror um, to challenge election results and overturn them. Or in some cases prevent black people from even going out and being able to vote. And that's what kind of happened in Oklahoma, Florida. Right, and there's there's such a, 
you know, so much current history intertwined in this, right? Because there's Stacey Abrams probably should be the governor of Georgia who would have been overseeing a lot of this too, uh, if it weren't for voter suppression efforts and at that time. Can you tell us a little bit, for example, about how you teach the 1873 Colfax? Yeah, sure. So for that one in particular, um, what I've done is there are primary sources that you can refer to. Actually, before I go into that, if I could, I would love to number one state that I had never learned about the Colfax massacre. I didn't until 2007. I, I love to read. I love historical fiction. And I think what a lot of people need to realize that is historical fiction is a great way to be introduced to new events that happened in history. And one of my absolute favorite writers, Lolita Tammany, she is amazing. She wrote Cane River, which was just an amazing piece of literature. And she also wrote a novel that followed up to that, which was Red River. And Red River actually was, it's historical fiction, but she does intertwine her novel with actual true stories of um, family members that were affected by this massacre. And when I read that novel, I mean, I was just like, this was an amazing piece of literature. But then I was like, I cannot believe that this actually happened. I mean, I could believe it, but I mean, it was just, you know, I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard about it. That's what I wanted to say. And immediately after reading that novel, I was like, I, I've got to learn more about it. And I wanted to definitely introduce it to my students. Um, so if you get an opportunity, Lolita Tammany, uh, it's called Red River. Amazing. And, um, you know, even, even before that, her first breakout um, book was Cane River. It's just an amazing piece of literature. If you, you know, you have listeners out there that are kind of like, okay, Colfax Massacre, I can't really find this. You might find it under Colfax Riot. However, um, I would argue that that term should not be used. A riot is really kind of just defined as a small like disturbance, disturbance of the peace. Uh, a massacre is indiscriminate and brutal, you know, killing of people. And that's exactly what happened 1873 on Easter day. Basically, uh, what ended up happening that particular day was in the state of Louisiana, you had just a lot of tensions. You know, it's, it's this, you know, almost reconstruction is coming to an end. And the Democrats were, you know, very angry, uh, particularly at the Louisiana governor's race of 1872. And it was actually contested, but the Republicans narrowly won. And a lot of Republicans over the state were kind of fearful that white militias were going to take over local parish governments. So the Republican office holders, um, particularly in Colfax, had occupied the Colfax courthouse and urged their supporters to help. And many of the supporters were freedmen who had, you know, many of them had just voted after passage of the 15th Amendment and they volunteered to defend it. And unfortunately, you had a mixture of various white supremacist groups and ex-Confederates from local and nearby towns, such as like the Knights of White Camellia, the KKK. They, unfortunately, the Black militia really didn't stand a chance because the white militia, you know, the white supremacists that were there maneuvered a cannon to fire on the courthouse. But the real horror is what happened after these men surrendered at nightfall um, they were brutally tortured and executed, and it's hard to get an accurate number. We think anywhere, what is it, from 60 to perhaps 153 were killed. It's hard to get an accurate number because many of the bodies were kind of thrown in the Red River, and that's kind of where Lolita Tammany gets the name from it. But we, in my classroom, we definitely talk about Reconstruction. And we talk about like the passage of the 15th Amendment and we, you know, we use Eric Boner, <laughs> some of his sources and the numbers that he gives us uh, to talk about, you know, how this was a time where you did have um, a lot of black men that were able to vote and a lot of black men did run for office. And we talk about, you know, you had a lot of black men that held off, you know, the Senate seats. 
Um, but then we talk about the fact that, you know, that was not without risks and um, that was not without a backlash. And that's how we get into what happened on 1873. We take a look at primary sources that, you know, real life accounts from what happened, court proceedings, survivors. And we, you know, we, we, we talk about the after effects, not only what happened um, in 1873, but, you know, how did that affect Black participation later on? And we kind of, we trace the decline of um, Black political participation after the end of Reconstruction. And then we even compare it to today. We talk about how many Black people that we have in the Senate and the kids just can't believe the decline from what they saw during Reconstruction. And we, I use the Colfax massacre as an example of the terror that, you know, befell Black people who dared to exercise their 15th Amendment. I really appreciate, thank you for sharing that story with us. And I appreciate also the clarity of language. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And of oh, course wow. the, the, yeah, Tulsa was originally, um, that's a whole nother story. I, I'm sure I've talked about it on a number of podcasts. I forget all the things I've said, but, it's okay. um, you know, but, but the point about the, the naming, it was often called the Tulsa race, riot, Which was an inappropriate name for until, and only in recent years that people started to call it the Tulsa race massacre. Um, and, and this is the 100th uh, anniversary coming up this year in just a few months. And so when you is part, so part of what your students then are able to grasp is as they look at the primary sources, they look at the actual terror that that black communities faced in the South um, around the Colfax massacre and, and these other, you know, massacres and instances of violence and voter suppression. That helps them then think about the, the possibility of these things in the present, right? Is, is that, does that, do they also at the same time learning about the struggle, the challenges, and the tragedy um, and horror of what happened? Does that also embolden them to, to want to do things today? How do they usually react? Well, I think this is where purposeful teaching comes into place, right? I think teachers need to wake up. Um, for me, uh, one of the reasons why I became a teacher was because, like I said, when I went away to college and I was able to major in history and some of the books that I was able to read and the people I was able to learn about and the events that Black people were over, able to overcome, I really felt, you know, you know, really, really, really felt in college. I was like, if everyone just knew about this, this would motivate everybody, you know, like reading the, um, you know, Harriet Jacobs, Incidents in the Life of the Slave girl and just learning how this woman persevered and overcame and you know reading about Frederick Douglass and you know tricking some of the, the young boys in you know Baltimore to, to you know teaching him how to read you know and 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 you know just the dedication to you know making sure that he obtained his freedom you know once you read stories like that once you learn about people like that they're you know I tell my students it should make you uncomfortable <laughs> not doing your best and I think that's what teaching is all about, particularly for social studies. I'm sorry, that's how I feel. You have to be, it's purposeful. I'm teaching with a purpose. I'm teaching to motivate, to inspire. I teach history as an example for people that they know that there is nothing that we cannot overcome and that there's nothing that we are facing that people at one point in history have not faced themselves. And I'm teaching to inspire and I'm teaching also for our students to learn how they can overcome, how they can make better. And also I'm teaching students, um, you know, with the intent of having them ask themselves, all right, now, how are you going to add to our, our story? How, what, what part of our national you know, story are you going to be a part of? And I think that's what it needs to be. It's no longer just teaching facts. Those days you know, are over and they really shouldn't have been the days before <laughs> at all. <laughs> so what advice do you have for teachers? And we actually have a lot of uh, student teachers who, who, who listen. What advice do you have to teachers in and teaching better, like how can how can we uh, continue to or work to ins inspire action from students? 
That's a great question. The first thing I would say is number one, when you sit down and plan your lesson, what is the purpose? What is the why? Whenever I give teacher seminars, I always start off with, all right, what's our why? I'm going to take um, a couple of minutes to prove to you why I deserve your attention. And I do the exact same thing with my students, <laughs> the exact same thing. And once you sit down and plan, what is your why? The next thing you need to also ask yourself, how does this apply to something that is occurring today? There is nothing that I teach. There is not one lesson that I am not at some point in that lesson drawing a modern day parallel. So I think that's very important in our lessons. What is your why? How can you prove to your, to your students that this is important? And not because it interests you, but because it's something that they should learn. And number two, how can you prove to your students that this is not dead history? This applies to something that is happening today in your neighborhood or in your state. And also, I would argue, too, what are the missing voices? If you are telling history using the same old examples, I mean, we have issues. Even when I teach, for example, the civil rights, you know, error in history, I love focusing on uh, the Children's Crusade because I want my students that I'm teaching to realize that this movement involved people that looked like them. Because once I do that, their interest is peaked because they're curious. Oh my God, how do people, you know, 16, 15, 14, 13, in some cases, 12 years old, have the courage to do what they did? And do, would I have the courage to do that? I love asking those, what would you do kind of questions as well. I absolutely love that. And um, one way I often frame it to my students is thinking of, of historical figures intersectionally, right? If identity is an important aspect of American history, then whose stories are we telling, right? And, and from what perspective? And there's so many good books right now, you know, that we have that, that share stories from different narratives and perspectives, which are often absent in our textbooks, you know, from whether it's, you know, we had an indigenous people's history of the United States for young people, there's queer histories for young people. There's, you know, I think a black woman's history uh, book for young people. Like there's all these really good books that we could use in classrooms that allow students to go and look, well, like what are different ways um, to look at this? And uh, in previous episodes, I've, I've pointed out, for example, just even how historical figures, you know, the ways they frame and thought about events. And I won't bring up for the Frederick Douglass examples again, Michael. <laughs> Dan read the Frederick Douglass biography a couple months ago and has talked about it in every episode, which is great. <laughs> it's just, uh, let, let me tell you, if you're, if you're talking about the David Blight, Frederick Douglass, how huge that book is, I don't blame you. Every single podcast that I would have <laughs> the rest of the year, I think I would earn the right to talk about it because that is a uh, massive book. It's amazing. But I don't even think I'm finished yet. <laughs> it is just amazing. We'll put it on the show notes for people. <laughs> Again, as it's we'll been get, every podcast. We'll get, We'll give out my phone number. You can call me day or night and I will talk to you about that book. I have so many different things to talk about and not enough people to talk to it about. So, but but it, the the thing that that book did, which a lot of books do, right, from history, whether it's it's the many of the books that you've just mentioned, but the nonfiction and fiction ones, is they 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 really address this master narrative that oftentimes is taught in classrooms. And they get you thinking about real things, right? When you think from different perspectives, particularly the people who are most vulnerable historically, you start, I think, asking different questions about the present too. And so I think that's really cool, the work you're doing in your class and, and your articles are appropriately titled. It sounds like you've really done a great job of, of you know, not just going through history, but educating your students to be democratic citizens for a you know, more just society. So, so thanks for your work in the classroom. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. 
If you do, uh, if you do a seminar at NCSS, I will absolutely be in the front row. You're, you got hey, it. I, uh, yeah. I'm doing another one next year. I did one this year, and I already signed on to do another one next year. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, and yeah, please put that on Twitter and tag uh, at Visions of Ed, and we will for sure share that because we want to go. We could have a meetup there. Hey. Maybe we'll all be vaccinated. We'll be together in person like the world used to be. <laughs> I love it. I will definitely do that as soon as I learn how to navigate my way through Twitter. I just joined a couple months ago. And, <laughs> and uh, I'm still and, tweet <laughs> and you tweeted out this article and like everyone retweeted it that's on the internet. Yeah, I have to admit for someone that has probably less than maybe three posts, because like I said, I'm not uh, the, the, the best when it comes to Twitter. I'm getting better with it. I was actually quite, I was very hesitant to do it. I was like, oh, it's so narcissistic. You know, what am I doing? You know, why am I doing this? And I was like, well, you know, maybe it might help someone. And I was really kind of shocked at just how trending it became. Dan actually DM'd me your tweet, but I had already read the article because I saw the tweet earlier. Oh, wow. That is awesome. That is very awesome. Thank yeah, you. we prob we probably would have ended up having you on when we got to that episode. But hey, Twitter encouraged us to have you on sooner. And you know what? You haven't gotten kicked off yet. So you're ahead of some people. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Alicia Butler-Arnold, for talking with us today. Thank you. I appreciate for for being here. I really do. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, so where can our listeners find you online if you want to share that that Twitter handle you were just talking about? Yeah, so it is Alicia Butler 19, A-L-Y-S-H-A Butler 19. Yeah, thank you so much again uh, for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue the discussion by tweeting at you and also jumping onto the NCSS site and reading that open access article Michael just pointed out to me that's open access. So we check the show notes. We have the article linked there and you can find it. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. It has. Thank you so much. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, we're here. Tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook sometimes. And if you haven't already, and really, why haven't you? And your um, family, Subscribe to Visions of Education podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. Michael, read a five-star review on the air right now. Excellent. This is from Piper Mo. Love and learn. I've recently been listening to these podcasts because of a class I am taking and have grown to love it. Each time I listen to one of the podcasts, I learn more about the topic and about myself. Oh. Each podcast feels like personal development, and I feel as if this is better equipping me to be a fantastic future educator. Man, that is so nice. That's really nice. <laughs> I feel like I'm going like, to cry every time you read one of those. Thanks, people. That's really nice. So yeah, make us cry. Leave us five-star <laughs> reviews. And if you also would like to give out some props, send an email to Zach Seitz of Wiley High School in the University of North Texas, or you Zach can tweet him. He does all the editing for this podcast, and we appreciate him. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.